According to Nietzsche, there are two different types of people in the world. Those who want to know, and those who want to believe. You have arrived at the crossroads of mind and matter. The Midnight Academy with Dr. Heather Lin. Matt Lewis is one of the nation's leading experts in career transition for members of the military community. He coaches individuals on their transition efforts and advises employers on hiring programs designed to successfully assimilate this valuable talent pool. He is the author of the award-winning and best-selling HarperCollins book, Mission Transition, a practical guide for veterans in career transition, their families, and their employers. His second book, Hiring Veterans, is a practical guide for the organizational leaders on how to build programs to successfully assimilate veterans and military spouses. Matt serves as the Veteran Transition Assistance Officer for his West Point class, is a national speaker on the U.S. Chamber's Hiring Our Heroes program, serves J.P. Morgan Chase's External Advisory Council for Military and Veterans Affairs, and advises the Board of Soldiers to Sidelines. During active commissioned service in the U.S. Army, Matt served in the Southwest Asia Combat Theater and in the 194th Separate Armored Brigade. During reserve commissioned service, Matt served on the staff of the Army's Office of the Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations and commanded multiple regions around the country for the U.S. Military Academy's Admissions Office. He is a retired lieutenant colonel from the U.S. Army and serves on the Service Academy Nominating Committee for his local congressman. Matt holds an MBA in Operations and Finance from the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University, a B.S. in Mechanical Engineering from West Point, and is a graduate of the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. He is also a certified Lean Six Sigma Master Black Belt and holds the ASCM Organization's Certified Supply Chain Professional designation. Matt is also the president of PurePost, the optimal means for matching talent to available roles in the U.S. economy. He previously led global strategy and transformation projects at Deloitte, the largest professional services firm in the world. Prior to Deloitte, Matt held global operational, production, and quality roles in multiple divisions of both General Electric and Procter & Gamble. For more information, you can visit his website at www.matthewjlewis.com. That's www.matthewjlewis.com. First off, I do want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, we did have a little uh, meeting before and so we've met a few times off air and on air. And so I want to thank you so much for coming and presenting the information that you're about to present. Um, I'm going to just go ahead and, and let you sort of take the floor a bit because you really have a message and I'm going to let you sort of give that message and then I'll maybe interject with questions, but uh, you're so good at presenting. And that's one of the reasons I'm so glad that you are the presenter of this information. So, uh, you know, if you want to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and, uh, you know, what it is that you are trying to get across to people with your two books. Sure. You have a new one coming out, but it's sort of like a bookend to the other one. Exactly right. First of all, Heather, thank you for having me back. I appreciate your patience and, and willingness to, to do a double take here. Uh, so I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to the conversation. Uh, for those of you unfamiliar with me, I'm Matt Lewis. I'm uh, 
I'll just take it very quickly chronologically through my background. I'm a 1991 West Point graduate. I spent some time on active duty, many more years in the reserves, uh, all told 25 years in uniform of some sort. Uh, I used graduate school as my transition vehicle and various stints through the corporate world. Uh, you can find all those entities on my profile on LinkedIn, all told 25 years and counting in the, in the corporate space as well. I've kind of pivoted my life's purpose in better part of the past decade to focus on eliminating the, the civil military divide in the country. And we can get into defining precisely what that is. Uh, but I'm attacking that that difficulty, that challenge from three different paths, three different avenues. Uh, the first, you'd mentioned my books. You can see them over my shoulder here. I'll just hold up some copies. Uh, the first book is Mission Transition. It's the most awarded book of its kind. It's a practical guide to help our service members find full employment and optimal career fields. And, and by the way, I'm squarely focused on employment. It's very purposeful. Uh, several reasons for that. Um, employment, uh, if you get a service member fully employed in optimal career field from the outset, once they depart active duty, studies show, I, I ground all of my facts here and figures and, and studies and statistics, it's not hearsay or opinion, uh, the studies show that they will more than double over the portion, over the course of their career, their earnings, rate of retention, job satisfaction, it's incredibly important. But more so than that, it, it helps to assuage any of the other issues uh, associated with other social de determinants of health. So to include uh, suicidality, which has the rates of which have more than doubled over the past decade in the post 9-11 cohort. So it's incredibly important. Uh, but that's just one half of the divide, as it were. Uh, the, the other half, and the, what I'm doing there to tackle it, this is the book that uh, Heather mentioned comes out on Labor Day, Hiring Veterans, Practical Guide for Organizational Leaders. And I use that agnostic term purposefully uh, to indicate for-profit, non-profit, large company, small company, academic institutions, governmental organizations. Uh, and the book is intended to enable them, it's a practical guide to enable them to build programs to bring on, to assimilate veterans and military spouses, this incredibly valuable talent pool that most people don't understand, realize is there, or if they do, no, don't properly know how to utilize them. Again, that part of the nature of the civil military divide. But even if you're successful with those two uh, uh, efforts, if you will, what still exists from an employment standpoint is a lack of a warm handoff, as I call it, from your last duty station and the community into which you settle. And that's where my work with PeerPuss comes into play, my new day job, as it were. I'm president of the company. What we do is match supply and demand of talent in the country with a specialty focus on uh, members of the military community. We serve the entire economy, but basically everyone on the team has a military background and that, that's kind of been our initial passion. What we're able to do without going too far down the rabbit hole on PeerPost, because we spent five years creating the world's largest proprietary database of translated competencies and skills, you, me, military, civilian, anyone can go onto our platform for free, for life, and create an online profile. Think of it as like a, a LinkedIn profile that will do two things. One, it'll instantly translate anything that you've done to your underlying competencies and skills. And then secondly, instantly match you with any open employment opportunity for which you're a fit in the U.S. economy on that basis. 
It's a very unique way of matching. Nothing else like it in the market at the moment. And it enables some incredible things. As an individual, because you get a better quality match, uh, you're going to enable yourself to have better career upward mobility and uh, better personal fulfillment. At an organizational level, again, because you have an optimal match, you're going to realize greater retention rates. And um, at scale and over time, you realize greater productivity and competitiveness as well. So uh, all incredibly important things. And that's why I'm focused where I'm at. So the peer post, it's available to civilians as well as veterans? Anybody and everybody. Oh, wow. Life, go on, create your, we call it a passport create your passport for free. It'll take you about 15 minutes, translate what you've done and match you with job openings. Well, that's, that's really good because I know I, not just the vets, but I know that um, civilians and, and almost anybody really, even students out of college, you know, they have all these experiences. They may be very diverse and they are looking to break into a field, but they don't know what those transferable skills are that they may have. So I guess uh, you're putting, what is it, an algorithm behind figuring it out and matching? So doing it the smart way. I'll just say I'm not the tech person in the organization. (laughs) Uh, There's all sorts of tech stack programs and algorithms and you name it. I'm, uh, I couldn't speak to that in any amount of detail. So I'll I'll defer to others on that. (laughs) Well, it sounds really, I just just know it works. That's I awesome. I just know it works. Yeah. It's be- I'm sure it's it's better than LinkedIn because LinkedIn is just like, I don't know how many actual networking opportunities or a lot of it seems scammy these days. And um, it's also very inauthentic. And then there's that social component where you're forced to sort of say congratulations to everybody. And it's just, I think it deviates from the mission of getting somebody employed. It kind of goes into that social media realm and all of those negative things that that could you know, come with as well. So it's great that there's a a, a better option for people and especially one that is uh, not only welcoming, but encouraging of vets. I think that's remarkable, you know? So why is it that uh, some vets have trouble getting employment after they've served? Uh, is it simply because they don't know those transferable skills or uh, is there still a stigma about vets that uh, some employers may have? It's probably a combination of of those things. First, uh, when you consider members of the military, they tend to uh, enlist at a very young age, uh, such that by the time they ultimately leave the military, the military is all they've done pretty much in their entire adult lives, uh, unless they've had a, think of it as a summer job during high school, let's say, uh, they would not have worked in what I'll call the real world. Uh, And so they would not have had experience doing things like creating a resume, uh, conducting an interview, uh, everything that all of us in the real world experience anytime we've gone and uh, tried to apply for a job. Uh, And uh, more than that, the the longer that they're in, and frankly, the more intense the experience they've had in the military, uh, the more difficult it tends to be to make that transition. Uh, they're ingrained, they're uh, socialized, I'll, I'll use that word, to a military culture, a way of living. It is a way of life. It is 24-7, 365. And uh, when they leave the military, it is a stark change uh, along a number of dimensions, all of which I document in my books. And uh, in, in in they experience changes along all of those dimensions simultaneously. 
it is a a whirlwind for the individual if they're not prepared. And, and that's why I encourage them in my books to start up to two years ahead of time before they leave to start to think through who they are, who they want to be, and begin mm-hmm. to put the plan in place, how they move from point A in the military to point B in the real world. Again, with my specific focus around uh, employment. So there, there's definitely... Uh, issues on the the military side of the divide and that's what the first book tries to address and help individuals but to your point there's all sorts of misinformation uh, on the outside of the military uh, from employers again i'll I'll focus there and uh, understanding or not understanding who veterans are what they bring to the table there's all sorts of myths that have percolated over the years that need to be overcome uh, and uh, the realization needs to be made that if you want to take advantage of what these veterans are absolutely bringing to the table, and you know we get into you know skills translation and all of those things that pose a challenge again for both sides of the divide. Uh, but you know the, the, the employers need to to optimize this talent pool, meet these folks halfway, and and that's what the second book helps uh, prove as well. Now, if it would be helpful in answering this question, I. As you know, I like to share slides and materials. Uh, would love to bring up some of those myths and give oh, you absolutely. A, a sense of how uh, we can debunk them. Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. I love that you come with receipts. You always have you you have evidence, and uh, it's it's your books are filled with evidence and uh, evidence based practice. So this is very yeah, good. Lots of materials here. I'll, I'll start off the top just by saying, and again, I base everything in studies and facts and figures. Studies here from Institute for Veterans and Military Families demonstrate what the true business value of veterans are, and your viewers can can read here. I won't read, but uh, HR managers uh, say that, and I'm pointing to the uh, bubbles on the right-hand side, uh, survey upon survey shows that veterans are promoted faster, perform better, and are easier to manage than their non-veteran peers. That That's not to create a, an us-versus-them dynamic. It's, it's simply stating the fact. Uh, but let's get into what some of those myths are, and I'll, I'll try to run through these quickly. Uh, one myth out there is that veterans are less educated than their civilians. Well, let's look at a couple different measuring sticks. If you look at high school degree, uh, veterans by 6% uh, have a greater preponderance of having a high school degree. If we look beyond high school, say a graduate or other advanced degree, uh, veterans are 160% more likely to have a graduate or other advanced degree and Veterans with bachelor's degrees have three times more work experience than the non-veterans. And again, here's the, the studies and the facts to, to back that up. The, this chart documents, and I've circled there, the typical ranks, the, the, the times at which individuals tend to depart the service. That's what employers are typically looking at, folks uh, within that circle, if you will. But what this chart does is compare the experience and the training and the education that members of the military have had vis-a-vis their civilian equivalents. And when you stack that up and compare to the number of people supervised and the amount of training that they, that they've had, members of the military have a broad and very deep uh, experience, education, training that in many times exceeds the, the civilian equivalent. Here's a great myth that people in the civilian world, they you know, watch a lot of war movies or what have you, they think everyone's, as I call it, a trigger puller, meaning uh, served in a combat capacity. Uh, Fact of the matter is less than 15% have done so. Now, I was one of those. I was uh, 
an armor officer. I served on tanks and shot big bullets downrange for fun. But, uh, you know, and, and therefore I, as someone in a combat specialty, had to reinvent myself a little bit more, more so than some others. But getting back to the point here, if I flip that around, 85% of individuals that serve in the military serve in an occupational specialty that is immediately accredited to a civilian equivalent and pick your organization. And you can see that the specialties here on the left side of the chart. Uh, and that's not to say that the service members, because they served in that capacity in the military, have to serve in that way in the civilian world. In fact, only about half of them end up doing. That. The point is that they have training and skills and experience in that that would be immediately applicable uh, to their civilian equivalent. Another one is around PTSD. And without spending a lot of time here, the, the myth is that all veterans are broken and they all have PTSD, certainly much more so than their civilian peers. Fact of the matter is, if you take a notional organization here, I just use a notional thousand person organization, there's five times more civilians in your organiz organization that have PTSD versus the veterans. Now, mm -hmm. that sounds crazy, but let me just quickly run you through the math. If we assume that 6% of your labor pool are veterans, which is what studies show, then in that notional thousand person organization, you got 60 vets. Studies also show that post 9-11 veterans, which the, typically the talent pool you're going to be hiring from, anywhere between 11 and 20% of those have PTSD. If we take what I'll call it the conservative end of that range, the 20% applied to the 60, that gives you 12 employees that are veterans that have PTSD. So let's look at the flip side. Uh, 1,000 minus 60 is 940 civilians. Civilians also get PTSD. Think automobile accidents, sexual trauma, what have you. Lots of reasons why people uh, succumb to PTSD. Seven to eight percent of the U.S. population has that. Let's take the low end of that range, apply it to the 740, and that gives you 66, more than five wow. times the amount there. Uh, there's another myth around the military not being very diverse. The fact is, not only do you get success with the military, I'll show you some stats on that in a moment, 31% come from ethnic and racial minorities. Again, facts. Uh, question here about, again, all veterans being broke, all veterans being disabled, and thus requiring accommodations. Again, it's, it's not true. Most don't require disability accommodations, and 58% of them cost nothing. Uh, so this here around a common complaint I get from employers. I can't find veterans. I, you know, I, I would like to hire them, but I have no, no way of finding them. Well, fact of the matter is veterans are real-time talent play. And in many cases, as I demonstrated with occupational specialties, a, a plug and play asset. Fact of the matter is there's 200,000 matriculating from the service annually. They're available year round, unlike folks coming off of academic campuses. And mm -hmm. chapter six of hiring veterans spends an entire chapter walking through literally hundreds of avenues by which you can access that talent. Uh, so the readily available. Uh, another myth out there is, you know, why should I? It really has no bottom line or top line impact on my business. Again, facts are anything but the case. First, consider that the military community, I use that term broadly, comprises 37 million folks that wield 1.2 trillion in buying power. And those that are wise enough to utilize this talent pool have a diverse uh, employee uh, population that includes veterans. They realize a 22% increase in productivity, 13 times higher mean cash flow, four times more able to deal with personnel problems, and three times more likely to identify and build leaders. Uh, very impactful top and bottom line. 
Last one I'll touch on here is again, another uh, thing I hear from employers, you know, why should I bother? It really has no impact at the end of the day. Beyond the top and bottom line impacts that I just mentioned, if that weren't enough, uh, it directly and palpably impacts national security. If I think about, uh, you know, if, if I'm a 16 or 17 year old kid out there and I'm considering enlisting in the military, if I don't see uh, veterans coming out of the military having successful employment outcomes, why would I raise my right hand and enlist? And in fact, that's exactly what's going on right now. Every single service, with the exception of the Marine Corps, has missed their recruiting goals two years in a row, so much so that the Army has had to physically shrink the size of its force. And oh, so wow. it's it's a, it's a direct uh, impact uh, to national security. Uh, even more so, even more to the point, if veterans aren't employed, guess who pays the unemployment bill? It's the Department of Defense. And those funds come directly out of DOD's operating budget taking money directly away from funds that would otherwise be spent training the troops and again buffeting our national security so direct quantifiable impact to the nation's security so i'll, I'll leave uh, it at that long-winded answer to the question but those tend to be the kinds of things that uh, uh, folks don't realize or perhaps think otherwise about I mean, those are really talk about myth busting. I mean, especially when it comes to the idea of PTSD and, you know, all of that, that's, that's very eye-opening because unfortunately media does have, you know, a, a influence on how people see vets or their, you know, and unfortunately there's not a lot of people who have served like there was in the past. So I'm sure many people have never even encountered, um, you know, a veteran to, to know the difference. And so that's unfortunate too. So it's why what you're doing is so important to just, you know, bust those myths. I thought about you the other day. I went to a place called Mission Barbecue. I don't know if you're familiar with that place. Do you have yeah. them around where you are located? There are. Yeah, they tend to have a deuce and a half truck out front. Yeah, they have that here too. I, I wasn't familiar and I know they have uh, a franchise, but it's it's not necessarily everywhere. I don't know that it's regional, but uh, I love what they're doing. And I, like I said, I went there for the first time, actually, and I thought, oh, wow, here's a good example. I mean, it's a little, you know, excessive in, in their um, view of it, but I guess somebody has to do it, right? And boy, you can really tell the difference in the quality. And so that's a, a shout out to Mission Barbecue, not a paid sponsor, but I would sponsor Mission Barbecue in exchange for their brisket. So if you hear that Mission Barbecue, but <laughs> yeah, so um, it's, it's really great when employers focus on, uh, you know, doing what it is that they can do. Uh, but when we think of employers and, and that, I think sometimes it's easy to think about like big corporations and companies. Uh, but, you know, small businesses, I think, really could benefit from having that sort of uh, candidate come in who has this different mindset about, you know, reaching a mission and, you know, the education that they bring and the experience and that adaptability too, because entrepreneurs and small business people, you know, they have to often wear many hats and they face different and unique challenges. And it's not, you know, it's, it's not uh, quite the same as a large company. And so in your experience, have you seen that uh, small businesses benefit from vets or, or is it more of a um, larger organization? Oh, it, it, it's across the board and you hit on a key point. I'll circle back to the U.S. Chamber study that that they did. The most recent one uncovered that. First of all, understand that small businesses, the way the U.S. Chamber defines it, makes up 99.5% of the businesses in the country. 
their study uncovered that 90% of these businesses, again, 90% of 99.5% of the businesses in the country do not specifically hire veterans. And they're responsible for 42% of the new jobs created in the country every year. So it's one, it's a huge missed opportunity uh, for, you know, reasons that we just talked about and we can get more in depth on the, the value that veterans bring to the table. And that's purposely why I included case studies in hiring veterans on two smaller organizations, uh, performance contractors and Cajun Industries, uh, who are down both down in the, the Gulf region, but both of whom have successfully put programs in place uh, to enable you know, the, the, the use of this incredibly valuable talent pool. And both of them, just to highlight kind of the key things that they did to enable success. And in general, this would apply to frankly any business. Uh, one, they ensure that they had top-down support from, in their case, as a small business from the CEO uh, who either was a veteran or was very familiar with uh, the veterans and who they are, what they what they could do. Uh, and then beyond that top-down support, both, you know, talking the talk and walking the talk in terms of uh, financial and other resources to enable the program, uh, you know, they, they brought in folks to manage it on uh, more or less a full-time basis. And those folks did two things that are parts of the, the keys to success. One is they created a, a, what I'll call a tribe, a peer set within those organizations, typically takes the form of a business resource group or call it a veteran business resource group. Uh, and that enables that peer set to come together and to thrive. And uh, lots of books out there explain the importance of, of having that tribe in place first, just from a very practical standpoint within those organizations, that tribe enables bandwidth and a group of people from which you can pool to help with the program. That's probably from, from someone running these programs, that's the, the biggest advantage to pulling them together. Uh, but there's all sorts of other benefits that accrue uh, to the rest of that talent pool, that peer set and the organization itself. So that's one, put the BRG in place. And I would do it in this order. Make sure you got the support, put the BRG in place. And then the, the next point would be ensure that there is a, a mentoring program uh, that accompanies the onboarding training and, and assimilation process that needs to take place. Now, why that's important is because it engages those new veteran hires with someone more senior in the organization, typically, yes, there's there's a, a buddy mentoring process that would occur within that tribe, but I'm talking more of a, a, a senior to, to more junior mentoring program. So in doing so, it connects someone that spent a lot of time in that organization, can speak to the dynamics of that culture, what it takes to succeed in that organization, ensure that those new hires understand that and can thus put their goals in place personally and professionally as soon as they get in the, in the door. And then they would follow up in, in very short fashion and consistently with feedback, certainly within the first year, we want to stretch that out such that there's regular touch points within the first two years because studies show if you're able to keep a veteran fully employed in that organization for two years, you're much more likely to retain them thereafter. Hmm. So you, you offer clear steps in the book on how an employer can do 
this. So if, if somebody were to say, have a small business and let's say it's very small, say they just open a bakery or they have some sort of a, you know, HVAC service or something that would be a, a startup, uh, and they're, they're ha they have it in their mind that, you know, I would like to give back. I would like to, um, you know, do my part in giving back, but also they understand the importance of the skills that the veterans bring with them, but they're just a little unsure of what to do. And yeah, they've heard all those myths and they just, and then they just, I don't even know where to find a vet, you know, what do I, and so that person, if they picked up your book, you know, it wouldn't be like, well, that, that'd be good for corporate. But no, it would be something that that average person who is a small business owner would be able to look at those steps and say, you know, I think I see a pathway here of how, how I would be able to bring someone aboard. No, it's exactly right. I'm going to go back to sharing my screen again. What, what they'll see uh, when they pick up the book, I'll, I'll blow this up a little bit so everyone can see. Uh, this is exactly what they'll see. This is the, the process on which the, the book is based and how the, the chapters evolve. Just like the first book, I, I described the first book as Crawl, Walk, Run, Step 1, 2, 3, uh, written purposefully that way because that's exactly the way that members of the military are trained. And so I, I kind of mimic that, that same approach here, but for application in the corporate space. Uh -huh. And without getting into too much detail on the chart itself, Obviously, there needs to be a decision made up front that you're going to commit to uh, support hiring these veterans and put a program in place, which entails the, the top-down support that I mentioned. And then from there, it gets into the balance of the, the process, first of which is understanding. And you, know, you, you talked about what steps they should take. There's a voluminous chapter up front helping them identify the nature of uh, the, the various dimensions of military culture and then compare contrast that with the dimensions of their own culture. And uh, there's uh, stereotypical uh, determinants or, or characterizations of cultures in smaller organizations versus larger organizations kind of give them a, a sense of the, the range or the spectrum of uh, cultures that, that are out there. So that it's key to organize that. In parallel, you can organize and staff the program itself. Uh, th those folks will help you create the content, begin from a branding, a marketing standpoint, begin to set expectations internally and externally. And then having done all that, you can start to actually go out and begin to recruit and, and after identifying those candidates and it proceeds fairly lockstep from there. Once you're engaged, uh, you know how to engage with them. There's specific process for doing so, specific way in doing so, such that you uncover their competencies versus what are traditional interview questions. And then, you know, standard HR process around finalizing offer, make sure you've got the onboarding processes in place. Uh, and then importantly, following up after ensuring these folks are properly deployed, make sure they get the feedback they need and uh, you can measure your success. Uh, and uh, not to, to downplay that last point, but and this would apply to any veteran hiring initiative or frankly, any hiring initiative, any program, frankly, that any organization should undertake. At the end of the day, there should be a return on this investment because it will take an investment up front. And I encourage you to measure that and hold the leaders of these programs accountable. At the end of the day, this should be moving the needle in whatever way that you're going to match the the metrics of this program with the metrics of the organization. My argument is always they should be directly linked uh, from a cause and effect standpoint.
So, so this isn't about just charity. So, you know, some people want to no. do what's right and, you know, and it's good and, the, and it is a good, you know, motive, but it's more about recognizing the value that these veterans bring and being willing to invest in them because it's really an investment in yourself and your business, uh, not, not something that's just nice to do. It's well said. And I state that right up front in the introduction. This is not about patriotism. This is not about waving the flag. I encourage all organizations to to view this opportunity selfishly. At the end of the day, because of what these folks bring to the table, it should be moving the needle on your top and bottom line and addressing whatever the needs are of your your stakeholders, your shareholders, depending on your for-profit or non-profit. That's exactly right. Have you noticed a difference in uh, success rates in for-profit or non-profit? And is there any that work better or maybe not so much? Or is it pretty equal? Uh, pretty equal, I would say. Um, I have, in terms of case studies and exposure, I have more exposure on the, the for-profit side. But, it, you know, interestingly, you know, veterans, because of their background and what they've done in the military, uh, you know, are, are shown, and I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm not going to be accurate on the precise things that, uh, that they're, they're focused in on. I'll summarize it by saying that, you know, the whole time that they've been in the military, the veterans have been focused on the mission of the organization and how they contribute to the overall good. You know, when you wake up in the military every day, you know, that the, the purpose that you're serving serving the flag in the form of, you know, your military assignment, your command, your unit, what higher calling could there be? And that it's part of the real struggle that they have in making their way to the real world. And that's part of the, the first book and helping them find uh, their purpose in the new world. Uh, interestingly, to, to the point of your question, uh, veterans tend, because of that experience, tend to have a greater affinity towards, you know, nonprofits uh, because they have a similar mission-driven purpose within those organizations. And veterans are sometimes turned off by commercial entities and their focus on the tops and bottom lines and everything being about uh, making money. Uh, but that's that's kind of what that is. And not to go too far down this path, but mm -hmm. for veterans to adjust effectively in those organizations need to see beyond that and to what extent uh, the, the mission, the purpose that they serve within that organization is not just driving and making the money, but how are they serving mm -hmm. their customer base and one way, shape or form. And I tell my own story in the first book as to how I found my way through to that. But anyway, nonprofit is uh, one of those spaces. Another one, interestingly, is in uh, entrepreneurial spaces. And I'm in the process of writing some additional articles on this for various publications. Um, veterans, by as a percentage basis, uh, tend to have a, a greater preponderance of, of those beginning businesses these days. And depending on what kind of metric you use, they may, uh, I'll say that, you know, with uh, italics, they may be more successful than than their peers. There's still a lot of data out being assessed right now, but some of the dynamics, again, cultural dynamics, um, dimensions, uh, tend in some instances to align more better with smaller, more entrepreneurial organizations than larger, more bureaucratic organizations. When you think about what people were asked to do in the military to 
adjust, fire, adapt, and overcome, and pivot on a dime to make things happen. And having the freedom to do so, that's in many times what an entrepreneurial environment looks like. Absolutely. A larger, more bureaucratic organization, you tend to feel like a bit of a, a cog in the machine. Uh, many times, a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of meetings that don't seem to make a lot of progress. And so that, to some members of the military community, can be a bit of a turnoff. Hmm. That's that's really interesting because I think some people look at military service as being a cog in a machine, particularly if you're, uh, you know, maybe not higher up or doing something. So I think the the image might be, oh, if you're a soldier, then you're just out there, sort of mindlessly taking commands and not worrying about the bottom line of what you're actually doing. And I know there's a lot of misconceptions, and so to think of, um, you know, somebody in that position moving from that to something that could be more administrative or more, say, professional in that regard, uh, it might not be a clear pathway that the employer sees. Um, so it would, so I'm interested in actually your story too. You, you mentioned, you know, that you served um, in, in a capacity that uh, you were in a tank, I think you mentioned something like that. So maybe a more stereotypical uh, vision of what it would mean to serve to some people. Uh, but then here you go and you have this, you know, great career in consulting and you're working, you know, in like tech startup and you're doing all these amazing things. Uh, I Was that an easy transition or did that take a lot of work? I know it took a lot of work, but I mean, did it take a lot of personal work or, you know, or was it easy? Oh, sure. It, it, it took a, a lot of a lot of work for sure, a lot of self-reflection. I began as context, and I'm going to betray my age here in answering this question, but I, I left active duty way back in the mid-90s. This was in the midst of uh, Clinton drawdown years. I was an armor officer, so think tanks. Um, and in that time frame, uh, realizing that the first post-first Gulf War peace dividend, as they call it, they're in the process of shrinking the force, budgets were severely constrained in organizations like mine where you're moving big equipment that costs a lot of money to move around we were literally locked in you couldn't roll your tank out the back gate and do hmm. do training that <laughs> you know obviously i as an officer or anyone in my unit that i commanded really en enlisted to go and do it wasn't a lot of fun and uh, there wasn't much on the horizon that would indicate that that was going to change anytime soon. Uh, that affected my decision to get out. The other factor was I, I got married and uh, my, my wife was in medical school. And I realized that for me to remain in the military was going to take me one path and her being a physician was going to take her another path. And by the time I got out, we'd been married for two years, but had yet to live together. And I just saw that Again, if I'd have stayed in, that would have continued. So those two things really swung my decision to get out. Uh, I recognized early on enough that I, again, undertook some self-reflection. There was really little to no support mechanisms at the time. Uh, today, there's things like TAP and SkillBridge, uh, which are helpful, but still not entirely meeting the need. I, I don't want to go too far down that, down that rabbit hole, but there's lots to say there. Uh, what I did, necessity being mother of invention, is utilize what resources were available. For me, uh, What Colors Your Parachute, a book by uh, Dick Bowles, was exceptionally helpful for me as a basis. And I started digesting that and applying that easily a, a year ahead 
uh, uh, before getting out. And so I, I discovered a couple things uh, about myself. One was if I wanted to end up where I thought I was wanting to go in the real world, I needed some some time to adjust. I needed to upskill myself. And so I saw for me graduate school as an effective transition vehicle. And so that's ultimately what I did. Spent two years full-time earning my MBA, which enabled me to do a couple things. One, rub elbows with those that had been working in the rural world their entire lives, and I could glean some lessons learned from them. Uh, two, it enabled me to upskill, as I said, uh, learn a new skill set, get via some internships, what I call boots on the ground, actual mm -hmm. experience in the real world before setting foot in it full time. Uh, so it was incredibly useful a period of time for me, uh, ultimately settled in uh, the real world, uh, initially at Procter & Gamble, after a few years moved from there to General Electric, and then on to Deloitte for 18 years, from which I retired a couple years ago, joining as president of, of PeerPost. But that that was you asked about my story. That's kind of the the short story, how I got there. Um, it, it, it wasn't easy. It, it didn't come without a lot of work. Um, I'll, That's a lot I'll, of work. I'll leave it at that and, and let you dive in further in various <laughs> areas if you'd like. No, that, that is definitely a lot of work. It, it might sound daunting to some people too. Is that, so that, that definitely influenced you on the first book. So guiding people through that process, since it was something that you sort of took on yourself. Um, but if, if somebody were out there and they thought, wow, you know, I'm trying to transition, maybe they you know, are a vet and they're spending time, I'm thinking of someone in particular who I know, maybe they're a vet and they're currently working at say McDonald's or, you know, some sort of job where they know that they just had to get some work right now, but they know that they bring all of these amazing skills and that they could do better. Um, you know, clearly they should sign up for peer post because then they could see those transferable skills. But aside from that, um, maybe if graduate school is not a question, or maybe they should go to school, how, how would they even know what the next step would be? Well, I know you mentioned something about, you know, taking a break and that's intriguing. So maybe you could hit on that. Well, if, if you're financially able to, if you're able to, correct. <laughs> what it, it, most people aren't. So what I'd recommend is just taking advantage of uh, time in the margins as it were, will, hmm. as it were either ahead uh, of your shift or, or nights and weekends. And that, frankly, that's really how I wrote the first book hmm. uh, and uh, nights and weekends. Uh, but what I would, would tell them uh, one you, you mentioned peer post and that's that's exactly where i'm going to go down uh, is to take advantage of that passport because not only let's use your mcdonald's shift worker as an example now, not only do they bring with them a ton of competencies and skills from their time in the military they've likewise uh, built upon that via their experience as a mcdonald's shift worker when you think of what they do uh, they're undoubtedly interfacing with others, may even uh, be supervising some people as part of the store. They're undoubtedly interfacing with customers, so they're understanding what customer support is, which in this day and age is, is critical. You're literally on the front lines with those that are providing you the revenue you need as a business to succeed. Uh, my point is, if you go into PeerPost, create a passport, it will uncover instantly what all of those competencies and skills are. What I always find fascinating is watching a veteran do this and one, seeing what they are because they typically haven't understood that, yes, I did that and I can do this. But more importantly than that, understanding where and how that applies in the real world. 
because those competencies and skills that they didn't realize they had opens the door to entirely new career paths that they previously hadn't considered. And to mm -hmm. see them look at the job matches after they've done the, the translation, completed their profile, you know, their eyes tend to get big. Oh, yeah, you're right. I guess I could do that. And again, things that they hadn't considered. Now, they, they need to do some homework and networking to, to validate these hypotheses, but it, it opens paths where previously there had been none. And I think sometimes people don't real just generally speaking, people don't realize the types of jobs that are available because they're named things that may be pretty obscure. They're not, you know, when you're a kid, you're asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you can say, I want to be a fireman or a, whatever. It's something very archetypal. Um, nobody says, I want to be a scrum master or, you know, somebody who's in logistics or, you know, yeah. but those are really great opportunities. And yeah. there's so many jobs that don't have fancy titles, but can yeah. offer you know, a lot of opportunity for somebody. And so it might be interesting to see when yeah. people sign up that, hey, there, there's some, you know, avenues that I might be able to, uh, Well, you know, another pursue. example I'll throw out real quickly. We just uh, signed with Uber. Think about what an Uber driver does every day, right around. And, and yeah, this would be an opportunity for a veteran coming out if, if nothing else panned out for them. But when you consider what an Uber driver has to do, do on a day-in, day basis to, to hustle, one, mm -hmm. and interface with customers every time that they're engaged in providing someone a ride, again, there's all these underlying competencies and skills that they gain through this experience that they can parlay into other things. Well, let me tell you, I, I am usually not really interested in using an Uber for fear. If I knew that my Uber driver had served and... I think that would change my mind completely. I'd feel a lot better, you know, <laughs> so they, they should advertise that they're doing that because that would really, I think, make people feel at ease. Um, so that's a great point. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll bring that up with them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a female, you know, maybe going alone, if I knew that there was a vet who was driving me around, I'd say, okay, we're, we're safe. We're good. You can handle any kind of problem that might arise, <laughs> but, uh, no, that's great. So, that's, it sounds like you have really great advice for somebody at the, you know, maybe beginning level all the way up to, you know, maybe the end of, of their search. Uh, but then on that flip side, how you have the two books, I think that's just what I love is, is your effort to try to close this gap. Uh, you're living up to that mission because with the one book, you're addressing the one side of the gap. And now the new book, you're addressing the other. I mean, you, you've really thought of it all. Well, it, it comes from my background as a consultant one uh two just my natural proclivity as an operator and efficiency and trying to address things holistically and so th that's why i've attacked the the problem again the civil military divide as i have to holistically get at that um would it be helpful we've talked about civil military divide would, would it help uh you viewers to better understand what i mean when i use that term Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I don't think we clarified. So yeah, but I don't think that people realize that there is that that strong of a divide. So I think it would be helpful. Okay, so I'm going to go back to my show and tell here with my slides. So I'll, I'll rapidly blow, blow through a few slides, but just to define for your viewers, your listeners, what we're talking about. So that the definition called a gap, called a divide. It's this divide between the nation and those who serve her. It's characterized by issues on, among multiple dimensions. You see them there, driven by root causes um, and exacerbated by, frankly, uh, opinions on both sides of the divide. Uh, but what it drives is a fundamental disconnect between what veterans expect of employers and vice versa. So let me throw some statistics at that. First, 
veterans make up less than half percent of the U.S. population they did a generation ago, and that trend is continuing downward, uh, so much so that by the 2040s or so, it'll be a third less than the 7.3 percent it is today. Let's look at Congress and re veteran representation in Congress. That's at an historic low as well. Let's look at uh, veterans in the workforce. Uh, you know, more than half of veterans are beyond retirement age, if I consider 65 to be a retirement age. And um, depending on what level you're looking at in the organization, less than uh, about two and a half percent of uh, senior leaders in uh, large publicly held corporations have any military experience whatsoever. Uh, so if I flip that around, you know, there's a 97 plus percent chance the person sitting across the desk from me has no idea who I am, what I've done, what I can do. Uh, so again, lack of understanding, lack of familiarity. If you simply simply look at where veterans live vis-a-vis -vis the balance of the population, that tends not to overlap. You Looking at the heat maps to the, the right side of this slide. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you've got, as we covered before, 200,000 folks coming out from the military every year. 70% of them are short of a retirement without a pension, and you know, half of them saying that they're, they're not prepared for the transition. Uh, we talked about earlier the small businesses, but Corn Ferry also surveyed large businesses, 80% of whom don't have veteran-specific hiring programs. So, you know, put all of that together, what we end up with, with more veterans coming out, entering a nation whose elected leaders don't represent them, corporate leaders don't include them, population doesn't look like them or live nearby them, and employers don't understand, and for which they're unprepared. Employers, while there's all sorts of incentives out there from work opportunity, work opportunity tax credits, et cetera, they typically don't have programs to identify, hire, train, and retain the vets, and they face the cost of justifying this for an ever-shrinking minority of their workforce, and assuming you're a for-profit organization in the face of constantly shrinking budgets. Uh, what all of this drives at the end of the day, and this is not a happy story, you know, more than half of vets, post 9-11 vets, which is basically those in the workforce today, they're going to be unemployed on an average of 22 weeks. Almost two-thirds will not be in their chosen career field, and they'll job hop and job hop and job hop, so much so that by their sixth post-military job, half of them still aren't in their preferred career field. And to add insult to injury, the suicide rate among this population has more than doubled uh, mm -hmm. within the better part of the past decade. So that's when I talk about the civil military gap, that's what it is. That's how it's characterized. And, and that's what I'm trying to help close with a specific focus on employment to enable it. Wow. Well, I think you're uh, definitely uh, not only talking the talk, but uh, walking the talk in, in the way that you've approached this and, you know, devoted your essentially your career to this. I mean, because this comes from a very personal place of experience and you sharing that experience with others, it's so important. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you, uh, you know, have brought this information. And I hope that people hear this and on either side of that divide, if they're a veteran, that they can say, hey, you know what? there's something I can do here. There's something, there's a couple things. One, you could clearly get the book. I mean, that's important, but then also go on to peer post and check it out and sign up for the passport. That's a, you know, I mean, there's no commitment. It doesn't cost anything. You can just do it and see, Hey, what, what other avenues could I explore, you know, with my experience? And then two, if you're an employer, if you have a big business or even a small business, now you have a path. There's no excuse. You can pick up this book and the new book, and you can look at 
as you clearly saw in the PowerPoints, you can see there is a path that's laid out for you on how you can hire a veteran, um, not as charity, although it is a good thing to do. It's a, it's a moral and ethical thing to do. But more importantly, you're going to get a, a big bang for your buck. You're going to get a, an ROI that uh, may surprise you. And so I think that this is a, a very good discussion that we've had. And I'm so grateful that you were able to bring this information on. And I mean, bring the information to with all the statistics and evidence-based uh, information. No, my pleasure. It, it is a win, win, win value yeah. proposition. It's obviously helping the veterans when you bring them on. It's helping your organization in turn, especially when you bring the, on these folks at scale. And as we covered, it's going to help the, the nation overall. So you, you, you almost can't lose yeah. Uh, if you do it in an organized fashion, and I stand ready to support that. I'll add one other resource to your earlier list, which is my website. Uh, whether you're a veteran or an organization, you will find voluminous resources out there to augment both books. Uh, specifically for the individual veterans, there's a series of courses, video courses, and an e-course, a, a voluminous workbook out there to help you work through the first book. So please oh, take advantage all for free for life as well. Uh, and the website, by the way, is matthewjlewis.com. Lewis is in St. Louis. Awesome. That's great. Well, before I uh, let you go, um, I'm going to throw you a curveball question here that's um, completely off topic, but my audience would probably be very upset if I didn't take the opportunity to ask you your thoughts on the UFOs or the UAPs as they're now called. Do you believe that uh, there have been sightings or, I mean, clearly people have been saying they are seeing things and we don't know that they're aliens and whatnot, but uh, what are your thoughts on the UAP situation? Um, so I, I absolutely believe, and I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist and I've never personally uh, experienced it myself, but that doesn't mean I, I don't believe. And without betraying sources, I can tell you that I've got close secondhand experience with those that have, uh, that I, I know well and trust. So I, I definitely believe it's there. Um, I, I'm unclear as to what that means for us collectively. And uh, it, it does instill a bit of fear. Uh, on the other hand, my other thought is, what, it, what can I really do about it? Right. So I'm kind of left to live my life as it is, as, as best I can. Um, but uh, uh, I'm a definite believer for sure. Do you think, I mean, this may seem like a silly question, but do you personally think it is an issue of national security? It, it potentially is. I just, I have no idea what the intention is of these other beings, these other entities. Uh, to date, and I, I could be wrong, but to date, I don't think there's been anything that has proven them to, uh, to be a, a direct threat. What I, I do know from what I've I've read and been exposed to is there tends to be sightings around uh, said nuclear facilities or military facilities. For whatever reason, they tend to coalesce in those areas. Not sure why. I'm uh, not sure what that means for us uh, downrange in terms of potential threats. There's far smarter people than I and the Pentagon that hopefully are being paid to figure that out. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully they figure it out and hopefully they give us a heads up. Yeah. I think we, I think we should, uh, I think we should have a, a heads up on these matters. Um, I understand the need for some secrecy, uh, but you know, it'd be good to have a warning before we have some sort of invasion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah. So, well, right, thank you good. again, Matt. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about these important issues and you're welcome to come on anytime. My pleasure, Heather. Thank you again for having me and I look forward to future conversations. Thank you. You as well. This episode of the Midnight Academy is sponsored by you, the audience. As we embark on this first season, we're refining our approach to deliver top-tier content and spark enriching conversations. By subscribing to our YouTube channel or podcast, you're helping to foster a community of thinkers, dreamers, and explorers. For those seeking more, consider becoming a paid subscriber. Your financial support helps us deliver better quality content, insightful discussions, and bonus material turning the Midnight Academy from a budding podcast into a groundbreaking platform and community where we bridge the gap between knowledge and belief. There are still many things that can be done to improve the quality of the show and your experience, so please visit our website to learn more about subscribing and stay tuned for more details in upcoming episodes.